This episode of Navarra Live is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you. Welcome to Navarra Live. I'm Michael Walker and I'm joined by Helena, a.k.a. No Justice MTG on YouTube and Twitch. Welcome back to Navarra Live. It's good to be back. Happy New Year to everyone at Novara and uh, looking forward to the show today. And a Happy New Year to you too. Coming up later tonight, the scandal that has been described as the largest miscarriage of justice in British history. How the journalists of Gaza are continuing their bravery despite Israeli forces killing many of them, too many of them. And we'll look at Rishi Sunak's tough time speaking to Laura Koonsberg. Stay tuned for all of that. Straight on to our first story. Later this week, Israel will appear before the International Court of Justice to defend itself against claims of committing genocidal acts in Gaza. The case has been brought by South Africa, who will be asking the court to apply an emergency measure to stop Israel's assault. The evidence South Africa has provided is compelling, but Israel just keeps providing more. A new shocking statistic has emerged. More than 10 children are losing one or more limbs every day in Gaza. That's according to the UN and Save the Children. Jackie Salfi of Save the Children told News Hub this. Sheer numbers of children who are losing limbs and are required to have the amputations without anesthesia and also not receiving antibiotics once they've had the operations due to lack of medical supplies. Getting medical treatment to injured Palestinians is fast becoming impossible. According to the World Health Organization, 600 patients have been forced to leave central Gaza's Al-Aqsa hospital following ongoing hostilities and evacuation orders. Most of the hospital's medical staff have also been forced to leave. Their locations remain unknown. But the hospital continued to receive patients as bombing intensified over the weekend. Sean Casey of the World Health Organization reported from within the hospital on Sunday. I'm in Al-Aqsa Hospital in the middle area of Gaza, the middle part of the Gaza Strip, in the emergency department where they're treating children, several children on the floor and on a gurney behind me, doctors calling out for scalpel and chest tubes. Um, many people coming in from an explosion. There's one child who unfortunately passed away whose body is not identified. And, and it's, as you can see, a chaotic scene. Uh, unfortunately, this area uh, is close to an area that was uh, evacuated yesterday. An evacuation order was issued. And um, they've lost a lot of their staff. Uh, this hospital is currently operating with about 30% of the staff that it had just a few days ago. Uh, they are seeing, in some cases, hundreds of casualties every day in a small emergency department. Uh, yesterday, they said they had one doctor working overnight in this emergency department with hundreds, in some cases, of casualties coming in on a daily basis. There are patients coming in every few minutes, um, and it's, it's really a chaotic scene. The hospital director just spoke to us, and he said his one request is that this hospital be protected, even though many of his staff have left, even though this hospital is under enormous pressure. The one request that the hospital director said is that the international community needs to make sure that this hospital and other hospitals like it stay protected, that they not get struck, that they not get evacuated, that they're able to continue functioning. Hearing that scream in the background just completely made me flinch, especially, you know, we're getting all of these reports about lack of anesthetic and how people are having to do operations, take off limbs without proper 
anesthetic and then you just hear that scream in the background and you just you can't imagine what the context is um, Tanya Haj Hassan is from Doctors Without Borders. She relayed this text message from a doctor working in the Al-Aqsa Hospital to Al Jazeera. The situation in the hospital was catastrophic today. So many injuries with no doctors or nurses. I had to deal with a child with multiple gunshots in his chest and one in the abdomen alone. I felt so bad because normally this child could have been saved. Finally, we had a lot of gunshots around and we had to leave everyone behind. And I literally cried because I didn't know what to do, wondering what will happen to the people in there. So people, they know they could have saved and they're unable to. I mean, we talked about moral hazard um, in, in the pandemic in this country. So sort of the, the emotional and moral damage it does to medical staff when they can't save people they know who can be saved because they're understaffed or whatever. I mean, in this situation, obviously, it's COVID-19 times 100. You've got people being... You know, your life is at danger here. You're being shot at, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, yeah, just just appalling for everyone involved. Obviously, this is what our government is supporting. Amongst the countless stories of medical catastrophe coming out of Gaza, Al Jazeera has reported on a particularly distressing case. Rafa Al-Farah is an 11-year-old Palestinian girl who fled the north of Gaza with her family in Khan Yunis in the south. Her parents and siblings were killed in an airstrike. Her injuries sustained in that airstrike meant that doctors had to try to save Rafa's sight, but it was without success. It's not just bombardment putting Gazans at risk. A spokesperson for the Gazan Ministry of Health has called on the international community to intervene in what he called, quote, the triangle of death facing Palestinians in the Strip. Now that's hunger, dehydration and disease. In total, 249 Palestinians have been reported killed in the last 24 hours. That means that nearly 24,000 Palestinians have now been killed in Israel's attacks since um, the war in Gaza began. A further 54,000 have been injured. And new evidence has also emerged concerning Israel's treatment of Palestinians taken prisoner by the IDF. Footage from early December shows the IDF rounding up Palestinian men in Beit Lahia, northern Gaza. The men were stripped to their underwear and forced to sit in the streets, some blindfolded. They were later rounded up and driven away in the back of Israeli trucks. The Israeli government later confirmed that the men were mostly civilians with no connection to Hamas. Despite that, they were detained without their families being notified of their whereabouts, and some never returned. Now, left-wing Israeli magazine 972 has investigated what happened to those men while they were in Israeli custody, and they reveal that the men were held, tortured, and systematically abused in Israeli military camps. Among the IDF's techniques, severe deprivation and brutal physical violence. Relying on the testimony of four Palestinians detained in Beit Lahia, as well as 49 video testimonies published by Arabic news sources, 972 has compiled a disturbing account of torture at the hands of Israeli soldiers. The site reports this from one of those detained, a man using the pseudonym Maha. A soldier asked me, what's your name? And started punching me in the stomach and kicking me. He said, you've been in Hamas for two years. Tell me how they recruited you. I told him I was a student. Two soldiers opened my legs and punched me there and punched me in the face. I started coughing and realized that I wasn't breathing. I told them, I'm a civilian. I'm a civilian. I remember reaching my hand down my body and feeling something heavy. I didn't realize it was my leg. I stopped feeling my body. I told the soldier that it hurt and he stopped and asked where. I told him in the stomach and then he hit me hard in the stomach. They told me to get up. I couldn't feel my legs and couldn't walk. Every time I fell, 
They beat me again. My mouth and nose were bleeding and I fainted. So he's asked, where does it hurt? He tells them the stomach and how do they respond? They punch him there. Where does it hurt? Oh, we'll punch you there again. The article goes on to report this. In video testimonies, Palestinians who were released back to Gaza described cases in which soldiers put out cigarettes on detainees' bodies and even gave them electric shocks. I was detained for 18 days, a young man told Al Jazeera. The soldier sees you falling asleep, takes a lighter and burns your back. They put out cigarettes on my back a few times. One of the guys who was blindfolded said to the soldier, I want to drink water, and the soldier told him to open his mouth and then spat in it. Another detainee said he was tortured for five or six days. You want to go to the bathroom? Forbidden, he recounted being told. The soldier beats you. And I'm not Hamas. What am I to blame for? But he keeps telling you, you are Hamas. Everyone who remains in Gaza City is Hamas. If you weren't Hamas, you would have gone to the south. We told you to go south. Detainees didn't just report torture and ill treatment. One man also recounted what appeared to be an execution. Labad is another pseudonym used by a former detainee. In one case, Labad said, a detainee who refused to kneel and lowered his hand instead of keeping them raised was taken behind the barbed wire fence with his hands cuffed. The detainees heard beatings, then heard the detainee cursing a soldier and then a gunshot. They don't know if the detainee was actually shot or whether he is alive or dead. In any case, he did not return for the rest of the time that those we spoke to were there. Israel has confirmed that Gazan detainees have died in their detention centres. An IDF spokesperson told 972 this. There are known cases of deaths of detainees held in the detention facility. In accordance with the procedures, an examination is conducted for every death of a detainee, including an examination regarding the circumstances of death. The bodies of the detainees are being held in accordance with military orders. So being held, which presumably means that no one else can independently assess what has happened, and I don't trust um, the Israelis to investigate themselves on these kind of things. More than 660 Palestinians from Gaza are currently known to be detained in Israeli prisons, but the Israeli army refuses to reveal how many are being held on the military bases where these abuses are alleged to have taken place. Some estimates place the number as high as several thousand. Now there are strict international laws that govern how a military treats prisoners of war, but they don't seem to apply to Israel. That's in part because the state detains Palestinians under its 2002 unlawful combatants law. This allows Israel to hold enemy fighters without granting them prisoner of war status and to hold them for extended periods of time without any legal proceeding. Israel can even prevent detainees from meeting with a lawyer and can delay judicial review for up to 75 days or six months with the support of a judge. Now, we've shown you quotes from the version of that article from 972. That's an English language news site. I do recommend you check it out. Lots of brilliant reporting there. Um, it was also published by a Hebrew language newspaper called Local Call, so directed towards the Israeli public. Earlier today, I spoke to Meron Rappaport, an editor at Local Call, and I asked him how stories like this are being received in Israel. Unfortunately, um, there's not much attention to any to these kind of stories. I myself published a story about uh, what we call a domicide, about intentionally destroying whole parts of Gaza City and uh, the northern Gaza Strip with explosion that seems to be a punishment, not during battle. Unfortunately, in Israel, there is very much, there is very little room 
for attention and for any compassion for what uh, the Palestinians are suffering and from what Israel itself is doing them. And I suppose even without compassion, there could be a sort of self-interested concern, right? We know the damage that those Abu Ghraib pictures did to the United States in, in Iraq, for example. And I suppose I wonder, is there a concern within Israeli society that, you know, the way that Israeli forces are behaving could damage um, their standing in the world? And I suppose, especially if you could comment potentially on how the, the South Africa genocide case, which is being heard by the International Court of Justice on Thursday, how is that being received? Or are people just ignoring that as well? Yes, of course, it makes me uh, very much uh, uh, worry for, for the future of Israel, for what it is doing and the consequences of what it is doing on, on, on its position vis-à-vis the Palestinian and the Arab world and maybe the world in general. And we see that in in this uh, case uh, brought by South Africa against Israel uh, with uh, um, claiming it is uh, doing a genocide in Gaza. I think that most Israeli public uh, do not really take seriously these accusations What's going on in the in the Hague uh, is described either as some something that has to do with quotes uh, that were you know Israeli leaders uh, made some uh, unwise quotes uh, talked uh, in an unwise way but nothing more than that. That's on the face of it. Underneath, I think. There is a concern. I think Israel is taking uh, uh, this uh, process in uh, Hague very seriously. It will uh, appear in, in, in the discussion, in the hearing uh, in the Hague, what it did not do before in all, all other uh, uh, processes that were like, you know, like this in the ICC or the ICJ. I think it understands the, the, the consequences of this. Maybe higher up, uh, there are people. Not maybe. I think in the in the army. Uh, I think in the higher echelon of the army, people are worried that they, even uh, personally, uh, will be subject to criminal procedures after this war. So there is uh, people are worried, and I think uh, even for the uh, position of Israel uh, in general with the ICJ. But the public either does not accept that Israel is doing a genocide or, unfortunately, uh, not minor part in the Israeli public. It's not a majority, but it's very much existent. Just don't care or even are quite favorable of very extreme solutions vis-à-vis the Palestinians, driving them all out. Uh, you know, they, there are many voices saying that the whole, all the people of Gaza are responsible for what, what happened in October 7th. The people in Gaza cheered, even if they didn't participate in the atrocities. They cheered. Uh, they supported Hamas. They, they, they supported uh, the, the attack. So they are responsible and they should pay the price. 
That was Meron Rappaport speaking to me earlier today. And I think it's really interesting. So every time we speak to an Israeli journalist or activist on this show, you know, they never tell you anything reassuring about Israeli society. So what we hear sort of from liberals in this country, oh, no, you can't. Yes, obviously, we're against Netanyahu. Netanyahu is far right and, and Smotrich and um, um, Ben Gavir, they're even further to the right. But these don't represent Israeli society. No, 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 no. What we need to do is we need to try and create links with, with the moderate parts of Israeli society, the Benny Gantzes, you know, these sort of people who are put forward as the, the centrist possible future who we could work with. Obviously, as a government, we are working with Netanyahu. We're arming him to the teeth, giving him diplomatic support and the like. But when you see sort of liberals, you know, potentially in The Guardian or on, or, or on Twitter, they're sort of saying, no, we need to, we can't demonize Israel. What we've got to do is, is find the moderate voices in Israeli society and speak to them. And of course, there are some moderate voices in, in Israeli society. I mean, the person I've just interviewed is clearly one of them, right? But it's a tiny, tiny minority. And what that suggests to me, right, is that if there is change in how the Israelis treat the Palestinians, it's going to have to come from the outside. It's going to have to be outside pressure, boycott, divert, sanctions. It's going to have to be um, countries like the UK, like the US, sort of being pressured to actually discipline the Israelis and limit what they can do. Yes, maybe it'll be the rise of China and the rise of other sort of regional powers. But if there is change, I think it can only come from the outside. And I haven't really spoken to anyone within Israel over the past few months who suggested otherwise, right? Every now and again, you sort of hear a sort of liberal Zionist in this country who sort of say, oh no, what we can do is, you know, things are about to change in Israel. Uh, let's just sort of wait and see um, we don't need to put too much. It's, it's better to hug them close and try and encourage them to go in the right direction. Anyone who understands Israeli society and wants the liberation of the Palestinian people disagrees, right? It's as simple as that. Let's go on to our next story. The post office sub-postmaster's scandal has been described as the largest miscarriage of justice in British history. Over 15 years, more than 900 local post office branch managers were wrongly convicted of fraud, theft, and false accounting. Some were sent to prison. Many were bankrupted. Others even tried to take their own lives, with at least four of them tragically succeeding in doing so. But all along, the real culprit was a faulty software system employed by the post office called Horizon. And yet, the post office relentlessly pursued the sub-postmasters for crimes they didn't commit, despite knowing from as early as 2010 that the Horizon system was faulty. Until now, no individuals working for the post office have been investigated by the police, but that may be about to change following the airing of an ITV dramatization of the story. The Met Police have now said that they are investigating potential fraud offences committed during the prosecutions. Two people have been questioned under caution. Also under pressure is Paula Venel. She was chief executive at the post office between 2012 and 2019, the period in which most of the prosecutions took place. In 2019, she was awarded a CBE in the New Year's Honours list. As of today, over a million people have signed a petition calling on the government to strip Venos of that honour. And now, two government ministers are reported to be supporting that call, with The Telegraph reporting that one cabinet minister was, quote, moved to tears by the ITV drama. Even Rishi Sunak has come out against Venos, with a spokesperson saying the prime minister would, quote, strongly support an investigation into possibly removing the honour. But given the post office is 100% owned by the government, it seems strange that ministers and even the prime minister are only responding to the scandal 
now that ITV has dramatised the case. Sunak was asked about the timing at a press event in Burnley. What do you think it says that it's taken an ITV drama to get your government to refocus on the issue of the scandal of the post office? And don't you think, after all this time, it would not be a good idea to just quash all the remaining convictions? So, first thing to say is this is an absolutely appalling miscarriage of justice. Uh, Many of you in this room would have watched the drama, and congratulations to ITV uh, for doing a superb job on it. Uh, Now, these things obviously started a very long time ago, and it's right that they're looked at properly. And the stories are appalling. People were treated absolutely appallingly. That's wrong, and we should do everything we can to make it right. I would say that, you know, over the last few years, my predecessors started the process of doing that, had the inquiry. Actually, as Chancellor, I approved the compensation schemes for the first time, which are now in the process of being paid out. And over 100, almost 150 million million pounds has been paid out to thousands of people. So people should know that we are on it and we want to make this right. The money's been set aside. Now, what we are now looking at is how can we speed all of that up, right? Understandably, we will... very clear. I want to get that out the door as quickly as possible. There are legal processes that have, people have had to go through, but the Justice Secretary today is meeting with the relevant ministers to see is there more we can do to speed up some of those processes. But people should be rest assured the money is there. I approved it as Chancellor. There are three different compensation schemes, and we will do everything we can to make this right for all the people affected because it's simply wrong what happened. They shouldn't have been treated like this, and we should do everything we can to make it right for them. Sunaki is right about that compensation scheme. A total of £24 million has been paid out in relation to overturned convictions. But the number of former sub-postmasters who've managed to get some justice is incredibly small. Of the 900 people who were convicted, just 93 have had their convictions overturned after taking the post office to court. So why did it take so long? That's a question GMB's Susanna Reid had for Labour MP Kevin Jones, who is a member of the Horizon Compensation Advisory Board. Why can't they just be given a pardon that, you know, their reputation's completely cleared? I totally agree with you. And the problem is, is they have to come forward. And if you actually meet the individuals I've just said, uh, many of them will not come forward. And the fair to the post minister, he has actually written to a lot of these individuals. There's 927 of them, and only 93 have been overturned. But these individuals are not going to come forward no. because they're not going to put those through the take of a court case But why again. can't they uh, just receive a blanket exoneration? If that if their well, case came in those dates yeah. on those facts, which we now know weren't facts at all, why can't... Is that possible legally? Well, that's what uh, myself and the other members of the advisory board have uh, written to the, Lord Chancellor, to the Justice Secretary saying that because... It's now been clearly demonstrated in court and at the public inquiry that the uh, Horizon system was uh, not uh, robust and at fault. Any convictions that were a result in of that system must be unsound. Right. And I agree totally. There should be a uh, blanket uh, pardon. Hearing the testimony of the convicted sub-postmasters gives you some idea of why they may be reluctant to come forward now. Jess Kerr was one of those pursued by the post office. Its case against her led to a mental breakdown and hospitalisation. In this interview with GMB, the scars of the post office's treatment of her were evident. Not only were you pursued by the post office, but local people 
understandably, I suppose, believed what they were reading in the newspapers. Well, there um, was... And, yeah. But unforgivably, then went on to come in and spit on the floor of your shop. Yeah, they uh, spat on the floor, they threw newspapers on the floor, they smashed my car windows. They should be ashamed of themselves. Yeah, of course, yeah, yeah. And this, the impact of all of this, not just the legal action by the post office, but, but the community reaction, not everybody, but, yeah. but, but these individuals, it almost drove you mad, didn't it? It did, yeah, yeah. It drove me so mad that um, I tried to commit suicide. And you ended up in, in, in hospital. Yeah. And as we saw in the drama, you were given, it, things were so extreme with you. Are you all right? Yeah. Jess, you honestly show such strength by speaking out, and I, I, I can imagine your family is so proud of you for doing that, and the community as well will know the truth. Mm. I find it unforgivable, unacceptable, that the post office has not apologised to you personally, that they put you through this. It is absolutely, I would say, criminally irresponsible. You were accused of stealing £11,000. It was absolutely not what had happened. You had not stolen a penny no. from the post office. It's disgusting the treatment that you have had to endure. And it is obvious to anyone watching that this has severely impacted your confidence. Later in that interview, Kerr went into a little more detail about how the post office treated her. I just want it all behind me now to be able to get on with our future. Mm. Um, one thing I did want to bring up as well is the fact that while I was in hospital, um, the, the post office didn't believe that I was there, so they sent their own um, doctors. They thought you were lying yeah. about being in hospital. Me in and hospital. they sent their own doctors to check that you were there. Yeah, and then they examined me as well. Oh. Yeah, so no, not only was I getting the electric shock treatments, I was always get, also getting grief off them. To and these, the, I was going to ask you when we, we paused the interview, you, you, you're back in the saddle now, um, this electric shock treatment, it's robbed you of, of, of memories. Memory, you've you've yeah. lost memories of your childhood. Childhood, yeah. And you're still medication, aren't Still you? on medication, Quite yeah. substantial medication. Yeah, yeah. Well, we pray that you get the compensation and the apology that you so richly deserve. Thank you. And, and you the irony is that we have this statement from the post office which says we're acutely aware of the human costs of the scandal and both, both, both post office and government are continuing to provide full and fair compensation. But you haven't received Nothing. a penny in compensation. No. It's just words, isn't it? No. It's yeah. just words. On one level, so this is just a scandal about, you know, the post office, 10 grand here or there, people getting wrongly accused. I mean... One, people went to prison, but two, the thing that's really striking about this and why it seems completely nightmarish to have been in this situation is because, I mean, you are being sort of gaslit by, 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 by everyone, right? So that the post office is telling you, you have stolen £11,000. Just admit it. Just admit it. You have stolen £11,000 in her case. I mean, I don't know. The numbers differ, presumably. And they've done nothing wrong whatsoever. It's an error in the computer system. But everyone says, well, the computer system can't be wrong. It must be you that's wrong. And, you know, obviously there's going to be a situation where maybe some of your family members doubt you. People in the community are definitely going to doubt you. And the state is convinced that you're guilty. Now, as far as I understand it, some people sort of essentially um, wrongly pleaded guilty to this because their lawyer said, then you'll get less time. Um, and they pleaded guilty even though they hadn't done it. It was all a computer system. And, you know, just imagining... Knowing you haven't done something, but everyone, you know, 90% of the people you meet being convinced that you did, and there being no evidence whatsoever to exonerate you, because how, you know, you don't know how the computer system works. Your lawyer can't sort of 
go into the computer system and say, maybe there's a problem here, right? It's, it's, it's all in this sort of mysterious black box in the computer. And then it completely ruins your lives. As I said, four people, right? We're talking about justice for, for the people who went through this horrific um, experience over a period of years, you know, this from sort of 20, 2012, 2010. Um, but for some people, it's too late. You know, they've already gone. They already killed themselves. Because you are, I mean, it, it would just make you feel so, so crazy, right? It's, it, it is like, nightmares often have this form, you know, where everyone thinks you're guilty or something. You know you're not, but no one else does. No one else 100% believes you. You know, I can imagine even your husband, your kids, they'll kind of believe you, but you know they've got a sort of 10 to 20% doubt in their mind, right? Yeah, I, can't, I think probably... Uh, they're telling the truth, but yeah, it's possible they did steal it, and now they're lying to all of us, right? And you and you just know all the people around you are thinking that. And the post office knew for ages that this was going on and covered it up because uh, they thought it would be more damaging, more damaging for them if people realize this. And the darkest thing there is they didn't want people to ever find out. So you could have people, 900 or so people, their whole lives knowing that they didn't do anything wrong, but everyone thinks they did. Everyone thinks they did. You know, all these conversations, oh, what led her to do that? What led him to do that? Oh, I always thought there was something going on with that family. You know, those are the kind of whisperings that would emerge in a situation such as this. And it was all based on a computer error that people at the post office knew about. Helena, I mean, I haven't watched this ITV documentary that's made this sort of a, a big story. I did listen to a, a file on four radio documentary um, a few months ago, which was really powerful. And sort of by the end of the half an hour, I was just like, whoa, you know, th the level of injustice here. Because of the, you know, the time period where people would have felt, it'd be so isolating, you know, because if you've been as a group, you know, obviously I don't, I don't want to sort of, you know, compare difficulties, but if you're sort of part of a, a group that's been really hard done by, by the state. So say Grenfell, for example, right? Horrific tragedy. I don't want to say this is worse than that. It's different to that. Because with Grenfell, obviously, the huge tragedy is that lots of people have died. Your loved ones have, have passed away. But I can imagine the only sort of little bit of, um, you know, consolation, that bit that sort of makes you feel a bit more sane, is that you're with people who are all on the same page as you, who all understand what's going on and are all fighting for justice. This would be so immensely isolating that it's just you being accused and there is no way for you to prove your innocence. What's interesting as well is that they obviously formed the Justice for the Subpostmasters group in the 2010s to try and fight together to against the miscarriage of justice here. And you obviously have correctly pointed out 900 people were caught up in this scandal. And the first thing when I heard about this that st stood out to me was this idea that somehow there were very few cases of sub-postmasters being accused of this kind of embezzlement of funds from the post office coffers pre-98 when the Horizon system was initially installed. And then the new system gets installed and suddenly there's this litany of cases of theft from the post office for one very specific group who deals with this very specific system. And somehow for so long, they were able to get away with this idea that every, every single postmaster, they must have been, they must have been the ones who are guilty here rather than the system that was definitely watertight from everything they've been told from the post office, everything that they've been told by Fujitsu about this, which that is what is so uh, un unreal to me when I first discovered this story, given how little reporting there was on it at the time outside of uh, some 
this trades magazine, Computer Weekly, which was very big on covering it in the early 2010s, uh, late 2000s. Now, on a more kind of serious matter, when you look at the people involved and the people who are to blame here, starting off with Paula Venels and her position on the honours list, which I think is completely untenable at this point, given that we now know about how much the post office knew about this at the time, I don't know how this can continue with her still having a CBE, given that when she was saying that there were no issues with the Horizon system during the early 2010s, when there was an investigative company involved in this called Second Sight, who were already trying to get her to see in the interim report they put out in 2013, that there were continual errors in Horizon's reporting. She was still fully behind the software and said that it was fit for purpose. And then there was a post office representative under her at a select committee saying that they were giving all documents across to Second Sight to investigate when the representative for Second Sight said that was not true in the same select committee. And then in 2015, Private Eye reported on the fact that the post office themselves, the day before Second Sight were due to actually publish their full investigation, told Second Sight not to publish it, and also tried to order them to destroy all the documents which were leaked by Private Eye anyway. So we all know that she was the person who was the head honcho at the time at which this large cover-up was happening internally within the post office. Now, when we talk about the people who are otherwise to blame, You've got to look at people within the political scene. What in my current role would be the kind of thing I would look on this on is the electoral consequences that are going to come of this right now. And to be fair, basically every political party that we've seen at the moment is to blame because they've all been in power, at least the major ones, over the course of the period of this scandal. When you look at them through the initial years, Blair was the one who was in power, who was convincing the post office to continue going through with the new system from Fujitsu because he wanted this investment in the Japanese company coming into the UK market at the time, despite misgivings internally within the post office in the late 90s, early 2000s, about the need for this system, the changing from the gyro to the computerized system and swipe cards and whether or not that was the future of the particular business. Of course, Fujitsu continually being completely unaccountable in all of this, despite it being their system that they created. And of course, the Blair government were in charge, who were the first people to have a person in the role of managing the, the relationship between the government and the post office to ignore claims from the sub-postmasters that they were being unfairly prosecuted for these particular issues. It was Stephen Timms at the time who ignored claims from sub-postmasters asking for the government to look into a miscarriage of justice on these issues in the late 90s. Obviously, the Conservative Party have been in government throughout the entirety of the mediation process, and it took them until 2020 under Boris Johnson for there to be any actual public inquiry into this miscarriage of justice there too. So they've clearly been in power for a large position in which there should have been more oversight of what was happening with the post office rather than keeping them at arm's length. Now, the people who have been most impacted, though, politically by the sub-postmaster's dispute is actually the Liberal Democrats. There's been an article in the Times, I believe it was earlier today, trying to pin this down onto Ed Davey. In 2012, he was the minister who was responsible for the post office, between 2010 and 2012, for just over two years, who was written to by a man called Alan Bates, who was head of the Justice for the Sub-Postmaster's group, who were the pressure group trying to look into this miscarriage of justice. He gave an 121 word response saying that he didn't want to actually look into this issue because again, there was this arm's length relationship with post office as a government department they didn't want to have particular oversight on and said, well, that's their own investigation to do themselves. Now, to Davy's credit, he did actually meet with Alan Bates after about four or five different messages of correspondence. But uh, throughout this entirety of this discussion, the entirety of this dispute, 
Davy continues taking post office management and Fujitsu at their word and didn't look any further into this issue. The person who then followed Ed Davy into this position was Joe Swinson, who stated in the comments that the IT was sound post-2013 when we had the interim report from Second Sight and didn't try and intervene to get the report that was then tried to get redacted by the post office published in 2015, even though it then did get leaked. And this has been pretty widely shared around the social media landscape, which is going to really damage the Lib Dems potentially at the next election, given that their current leader is someone massively implicated in this particular scandal. However, what I will say is that despite my gigantic misgivings for the Liberal Democrats as a political party, something I share with uh, your colleague Aaron Bastani, I actually think that really and truly the people who have done the least were Labour and the Conservatives, because at least Ed Davey met with Alan Bates. Nobody, nobody, no representatives met with Alan Bates through the entirety of that period from either of the other parties. Whereas Ed Davey at least gave him a fair hearing. I mean, maybe not a fair one, but at least a hearing somewhat in terms of a discussion between the two. So all of our political parties have failed in their jobs when they've been in government over certain periods to actually give this proper oversight. Now, the last thing I would say on this particular issue is that people would find it easy to compartmentalize this as an issue of just a software failure. But software failures happen all the time. And what this really is, is a gigantic continual, essentially a conspiracy from multiple layers of both high-level management and mid-level management within both Fujitsu and in the post office to cover up gigantic failures and miscarriages of justice. Now, of course, this can happen both publicly and privately. But what I would say that the real solution to this is that we do need to have far more levels of worker democracy in our society where people who are in positions of responsibility who can get caught up in conspiracies like this, in, in corruption like this, are going to have far more recompense within internally to people above them who would be able to deny things like these things are happening if there was a more representative level in our workplaces, both public and private. Because, of course, these people were unaccountable at the top of both Fujitsu and the post office when they were essentially continually cover up what was going on here from the time at which Second Sight had published their findings upon the failures of Horizon. So, that would be what I would say, both either public or private. This is not a specific ownership issue. This is a level to which that we delegate far too much responsibility to executives and CEOs who are completely unaccountable. And it takes decades for these things to ever, ever get exposed. Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? I mean, a, a proper study of, of 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 the incentive structure, you know, in in the post office and horizon, sort of why did they decide to cover this up? Because, you know, hopefully it's going to have worked out worse for them in the end to do that. I say hopefully because, you know, we would like to see some accountability and justice. But what what kind of structure would, would have encouraged them to admit the mistake as soon as it happened and, you know, make sure that this miscarriage of justice was overturned as soon as possible? I'm not sure. That's an interesting idea that maybe some more sort of workplace democracy could help us get there. Next story. It's going to be a difficult election year for Rishi Sunak as he tries to cling on to power amidst a complete collapse in the Tories' credibility. And in what looks like the start of his election campaign, he has given his first big interview of the year to the BBC. But it wasn't long before the cracks began to appear. That's because Sunak appears to be at risk of falling or failing the right-wing Tory purity test, at least according to reports that emerged over the weekend. They claim that while Chancellor Sunak had doubts about the Tory rights holy grail, the Rwanda scheme. That's bad news for a prime minister who's already alienated some of his more rabid backbenchers who see him as too weak on issues like breaking international law. So when he appeared on the BBC's Laura Koonsberg show, Sunak was keen to dispel any doubts. 
I'm asking you to say completely clearly whether you ever had any doubts about whether or not sending migrants to Africa from UK shores would put people off making the journey across the channel. Well, this, this hasn't been tried before in our country. I mean, it's fair to say it is novel. I've been very clear that this is a novel yeah. scheme. Of course it's novel, but actually we should have more confidence today that it will work precisely because we've got a returns agreement with Albania that is working incredibly well. And the separate thing about sending people back to the country that they were they were no, from. The However, ah, well, that's where I disagree with you, because I think the principle is the same. Because the principle is this. If you come here illegally, you shouldn't be able to stay here and you will be returned either to your home country or indeed to a safe alternative like Rwanda. The principle is that you won't be able to stay here because we will have somewhere else to send you. And that is the deterrence that I think is so important. The National Crime Agency agrees. And that's why I'm so keen to get this scheme up and running. But look, people will disagree. The Labour Party disagrees with that principle, by the way, about having a deterrence and having a workable returns agreement. My view is you cannot solve this problem without having a proper deterrent, and, and, and Rwanda Keir, is how we will deliver And Keir Starmer will be here next week, so we'll put and, lots and of questions. I'm sure you will ask him. We will ask him lots of lots of questions too. So today we're here. Deterrent today like we're Rwanda. here to talk about what you think. Now I have no doubt that Rishi Sunak is a smart guy. Like clearly he's intelligent to some degree, right? He had a successful career. I'm sure he did well in school and university. So he must know that what he's saying is complete nonsense. Right. The reason, whether or not you like this, so separate from the ethics of all of this, we're talking about what works. The reason the deal with Albania worked is because anyone who comes to Britain from Albania now, there's a high chance they're going to get sent back to Albania because there is a deal with the Albanian government. Obviously, the Albanian government isn't going to particularly struggle um, to you know, absorb Albanians because they've only just left there. Right. So that deal meant that everyone who came from Albania you know, will, will quite likely, it's highly likely that they'll get sent back to Albania. Now, of course, that's a massive deterrent. That's a massive deterrent. You're not going to bother trying to get to a country if you think there's a really, really high chance that you're going to get sent back. The Rwanda scheme is this idea that you're going to send about 500 people out of 50,000 people, and suddenly then all 50,000 people are going to say, oh no, uh, there's a risk that 2% of us will get sent to Rwanda, so we're not going to come anymore. Now, I mean, this is quite obvious, isn't it, that people who are coming from you know, sub-Saharan Africa, the Middle East, all the way to the UK, they're taking a lot of risks, right? They're taking a lot of risks. On that journey, there's probably more than 2% chance, sadly, that you know, people will be in a life-threatening situation. You know, people do pass away on those journeys. So people are already taking a much bigger risk than the 2% chance that they get sent to Rwanda. So the idea that this is similar to the Albania policy is just nonsense. And as I say, this is all separate from, you don't have to agree on migration being good or migration being bad. This is just simple logic that what Rishi Sunak is saying is nonsense. It seems very risky for me that you're going into an election with a policy that you know is nonsense. Because I think lots of other people are going to also realize it's complete nonsense. Um, we've got more from that interview in a second. So stay with us. On Friday, though, we mentioned our fundraiser and showed you how close we were to hitting 4,000 new supporters. Let's take a look at where things stand now. Thank God we have hit uh, 4,042. Would have been embarrassing if we didn't. So thank you so much um, for those of you who did sign up as a new regular supporter over the weekend. And we have achieved our weekend ambition, which is to hit 4,000 new paying subscribers. Um, that graph evidently shows you we still want another 1,000. We desperately want to get up to 5,000 new paying supporters. So we are in ship shape 
to report on the coming general election. So if you aren't already a subscriber, please do go to navarromedia.com forward slash support. That link is in the description. Back to Sunak. The Rwanda scheme is likely to be a major part of Sunak's election strategy as he tries to appease the Tory right. But another major plank of his plan is straight out of the traditional Tory playbook. Pay for tax cuts for the better off by coming down hard on those on welfare. Speaking to The Telegraph, Sunak has promised more tax cuts delivered by what he calls discipline, 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 especially when it comes to social spending and especially when it comes to other people. Now, that pledge came up again on the BBC where Sunak said this. What we've seen over the past couple of years is a very significant rise in the number of people who are being deemed unfit to work. And, and that's something that is concerning to me. I believe very strongly in the importance of hard work and rewarding hard work, which is why we're cutting taxes on work as of this weekend, very significantly. Now, in the last decade, that system hasn't been reformed at all. And you've seen the number of people who are signed off has tripled. Now, do I think our country is three times sicker than it was a decade ago? The answer is no. And that the system is not working as it was designed to work. Mm -hmm. And now we are bringing forward reforms that will mean that we look at the eligibility for who is signed off sick. That won't affect all those on existing benefits. It will come in over time on people who are newly presenting to the welfare system. And that is something that I think is the right thing. It's about fairness. It's about making sure that everybody who can work does work. And for everyone who is working hard, we reward that hard work with tax cuts. But that is a conservative approach. It's one that I think is right for our country. It doesn't seem self-evident to me that the country isn't three times sicker. I mean, I don't know. I haven't, I haven't seen the statistics, but we are an aging society. Like the, the number of older people in our society is dramatically increasing. Now, obviously, this isn't including pension age people. This is working age people, but a lot of them will sort of, you know, people are more likely to be sick if they're in that 55 to 65 band um, than if they're in the 35 to 45 band, for example. So sort of people being a bit sicker might be um, not too surprising. Also, long COVID is real, right? Has it made us three times sicker? I don't know. Um, but it seems like that's that's something that should be studied as opposed to just asserted. Helena, what do you make of this story and I suppose this pitch from the Conservatives to say we're spending too much money on people who are too sick to go to work? Um, the implication there that a bunch of them must be able to go to work. We're not three times sicker, but three times more people are claiming these benefits. Therefore, um, a number of them are claiming them when they don't really need to. How would you respond? Well, I mean, I think this is respective of a broader kind of essentially mistruth, really, that there is this unknown but large contingent of the non-working people who are signed off from working who are there erroneously. Lots of people believe this to be self-evident, despite there actually being no evidence. Interesting that he claims, oh, we're not three times good than we were. I mean, hospital waiting lists are definitely much longer than they used to be. And that's a deliberate fault of his government. I mean, maybe not him specifically, but definitely the fault of George Osborne, definitely the fault of Philip Hammond, definitely the fault of NHS budgets dropping as a share of GDP every year from 2010 to 2018. And of course, we had a pandemic. These are all things that contribute to the levels which people get signed off as unable to work. And one of the largest groups of those people are people who have mental health problems. Another 
failure of essentially their economic management of being able to ensure that people have good enough standards of living that they don't have mental health problems, which it's not a secret that mental health issues have massively increased in accordance with the drop in living standards that we've seen over the over the period of this conservative government because of continual austerity budgets. And this contingent that they try and tell us exists of people who are signed off to work who should actually be working, it doesn't exist. They was running with this pitch of you before the year ended on like things like question time saying, well, people can work from home now. So surely there are a bunch of disabled people who previously were signed off who could now do at least some working from home, which fundamentally misunderstands how disability even works, how people can have some energy some days and some days not. Maybe there's some schemes that you can do to have them working in with with lots of help to do it with like a, a kind of a carrot rather than a stick but all they're trying to do here is just reduce the welfare budget through punitive measures by essentially creating a mistruth to the public about a group of people who from what i've seen from all the evidence that you hear from disabled activists that just don't exist that just completely don't exist on top of that he has no mandate for welfare cuts. He has no mandate for this kind of continual desire for budgetary austerity, because that's not what the platform that he was elected on. The Boris Johnson manifesto in 2019 promised things like the continual operating of the welfare budget in line with inflation for things like benefits. So there was no mandate. There's no appetite for austerity in terms of the public consciousness. When they get asked about what they want to see happen with public spending, they want to see public spending go up, not down, for small tax cuts. Tax cuts that don't really exist in, in reality, because when you look at fiscal drag, that outdoes all the tax cuts they've done so far anyway. All of this rhetoric about, oh, we're, the, we're, we're a tax-cutting government now, all of this, this New Year's tax cut on national insurance they've given us, when really and truly for the vast majority of the population, the tax burden is still increasing because of fiscal drag. And there's like a very small section of middle income or slightly above middle income earners who get a bigger tax cut from the national insurance cut than they gain, than they lose, sorry, from the fiscal track. Interesting, that very small swing demographic might see a slight reduction in taxes. Everybody else's taxes are still going up because of fiscal drag. So it's incredible that he can just get away so often with so many of these mistruths. And of course, does he ever get called out on these mistruths? Very, very rarely by uh, our press. And that's very frustrating to me. Let's go to our final story. Wael Dadu is Al Jazeera's Gaza bureau chief and one of the Arab world's most celebrated journalists. He has put himself at great risk to continue reporting on Israel's bombardment of Gaza and he has paid a terrible personal cost. In October, his wife Amna, his grandchild Adam, his 15-year-old son Mahmoud and seven-year-old daughter Sham were killed in an Israeli airstrike in Nuzarat refugee camp. Aldu continued reporting. Now, this weekend, his eldest son and Al Jazeera colleague was also killed by Israel. Hamza al-Dadu was a journalist and cameraman for Al Jazeera who has been reporting on the Gaza war since it began. He had amassed over a million Instagram followers. But on Sunday, a car he was travelling in was struck by an Israeli airstrike. Hamza died at the scene, as did his colleague Mustafa Turaya. A third journalist was seriously injured. According to Al Jazeera, Hamza had been travelling to the Mirage area of northeast Gaza, which was designated a humanitarian zone by Israel. Hamza had been travelling there not to find safety, but to report on the aftermath of bombing in the area. The IDF told the BBC, quote, an IDF aircraft identified and struck a terrorist who operated an aircraft that posed a threat to IDF troops. 
We are aware of the reports that during the strike, two other suspects who were in the same vehicle as the terrorists were also hit. So you did hear that right. The IDF, the Israeli government, in their press release about the death of a journalist is calling them a terror suspect, right? Could that be the kind of attitude that's led to so many journalists being killed? Right? If you, if you consider journalists to be terrorists, then you would kill them, wouldn't you? It does seem that the Israeli government considers journalists to be terrorists. So it's not a surprise that we are seeing these atrocities. Al Jazeera is, of course, a 24-hour news channel. So the immediate aftermath of the killing of Hamza al-Dadur was reported in real time. In this emotional clip, one of Hamza's colleagues in Gaza, Hind Kuduri, was asked to pay tribute to her colleague and friend. My last conversation with Hamza was about evacuating to Rafah because he knows I'm in the middle area in Deir al-Balah. And most of the Al Jazeera's team evacuated to Rafah. And he was like, you're missing, you have to evacuate with everyone and we're waiting for you. And I was joking with him, is there a place to sleep? Is there a tent? And we were talking and we we're giggling and we we're, we're joking despite all of uh, the atrocities we have been going through every single day. But the last time I was in Rafah, I was searching for Hamza between the tents. I wanted to tell him hi and to chat with him a little bit. He saw me uh, post a video of a girl baking cinnamon rolls and I promised that I will get some uh, for him when I go to Rafah. Hamza is a very beautiful man and journalist and friend and I, I don't want to cry but I'm reporting this right now because I know that if, if Hamza was here, he wanted me to report and he wanted all of our, his colleagues to report and to continue reporting. And I'm so proud of Hamza and everything he did and everything he reported during the 90 days and more than 90 days and how he was very strong despite everything he went through with his father. Hamza was a great friend for, for everyone and every, our tears today is because we miss him and we're going to miss him and we're going to miss his smile. Hamza was not a normal friend. He was a very generous and kind friend and... I'm, I'm talking right now and I imagine him in front of my face, smiling. It's a very big loss and it's a huge loss and we're going to miss Hamza so much and I don't want to cry. I don't want to cry. It's okay, Hin, just take a breath. I'm for sorry, I'm, Hin, I'm, I'm, just take I a breath for a moment. like separate my emotions. Yeah, just take a breath for a moment. I'll just sum up exactly um, how obviously we feel the same way here at headquarters in Doha. It's a huge loss uh, and one that we share with uh, Wiles family, obviously a tough time in a, a, at a scenario and in a situation um, when you know somebody so very closely and that you work in a very difficult situation uh, such as Gaza has been for the last three months. So heartbreaking to watch. I mean, it's so important to remember how essential these journalists in Gaza are. You know, no other international journalists have been allowed into the Gaza Strip. I mean, there was a couple of occasions where they could go in embedded with IDF troops. So basically it could be shown whatever the Israeli army wanted them to be shown. We also showed you one clip of a, a CNN journalist getting into a, a hospital, probably with sort of an Emirati group, but or a Qatari group. But no one else has been able to get in there. So all the information we're getting from within Gaza is coming from these incredibly brave journalists. And they are getting killed, right? And this is, you know, Al Jazeera, the biggest um, sort of television network in the Arab world, and their top journalists are being killed. 
right? The top journalists are being killed. Now, is this targeting of journalists or is it just because in this war, what they are doing is bombing an incredibly densely populated area? Now, obviously, this seems targeted, doesn't it? It's on a, um, a car, free people driving in a car, free of them journalists, all dead because of a targeted strike. In another moving moment, Wael Dadu gave this statement at his son's funeral. What can you say when you've lost a child? Hamza was not a part of me. Hamza was all of me. He was the soul of my soul. He was everything to me. It was said in the past that the freedom of opinion and the freedom of expression and the work that journalists do in obtaining information, photos and footage in order for the deserving audience to view them. It was said that our job was guaranteed by international law and humanitarian law. However, 107 journalists have fallen. Their blood has been spilled on this land as if no one heard about what was said as if no one was seeing what is happening here. I call upon the entire world to put an end to all this killing that is taking journalists one after the other. According to Gaza's media office, 107 journalists have been killed since the start of the Gaza war. The Committee to Protect Journalists say they have recorded 79 journalists who've been killed. Now, whichever figure we choose, it's unprecedented in recent history. The Committee to Protect Journalists say this is the deadliest conflict for journalists since they began collecting data in 1992. Many does suspect that the killing of so many journalists in Gaza cannot be an accident. Al Jazeera released this statement after Hamza's death. The Israeli occupation forces has systematically targeted our colleague Wael Dadu and his family, killing his wife, son, daughter and grandson in November 2023. Wael and his colleague, the late Samir Abu Dhaka, cameraman, were also targeted in December 2023. The assassination of his son Hamza in January 2024 confirms without a doubt the Israeli forces' determination to continue these brutal attacks against journalists and their families, aiming to discourage them from performing their mission, violating the principles of freedom of the press and undermining the right to life. Al Jazeera condemns in the strongest terms the ongoing crimes committed by Israeli occupation forces against journalists and media professionals in Gaza. This alarming trend requires immediate attention and action from the international community. We urge the International Criminal Court, the governments and human rights organizations and United Nations to hold Israel accountable for its heinous crimes and demand an end to the targeting and killing of journalists. Al Jazeera pledges to take all legal measures to prosecute the perpetrators of these crimes and stands in solidarity and support with all journalists in Gaza. Al Jazeera reaffirms its commitment to achieving justice for more than 100 journalists killed and to continue to cover these grave violations. Every life matters equally. Every life matters equally. But while is, you know, it's a bit like if, you know, Laura Koonsberg or, or Robert Pest and their entire families had just been taken out during a conflict, right? Some of the most famous journalists in the Arab world, sort of household names, and Israel is just one by one taking out their family members. Now, either that's targeted, which is a war crime, or this is just a typical Palestinian family in Gaza, 
know, a typical family, Palestinian family in Gaza. Oh yeah, it's normal. Oh, your wife was killed and then your kids were killed. Oh, and then your other kid was killed and then your grandkid was killed. Oh yeah, that's Gaza. That's Gaza. One or the other. Either they're targeting journalists or they're killing people so indiscriminately that the experience of this incredibly prestigious journalist is, is just completely normal, unremarkable. It's been a very long pattern that we've seen by the actions of the State of Israel throughout the continuing Israel-Palestine conflict. They have continually allowed journalists to be killed uh, across multiple different phases of each part of this conflict. In fact, if you look at the stats just for this year, the number of journalists who've been killed in Gaza is double the number of all wars combined globally in 2023, which is a staggering amount of journalists that have been killed, hence the figures that you've said from before about it being the most dangerous war for journalists for 30 years or so. What is interesting as well is the incredible double standard that we see on the level to which the West reports on these things. When journalists are killed in Ukraine, it's a tragedy. When Saudi Arabia assassinate Jamal Khashoggi in a politically motivated assassination, there is global outrage, there is global Western outrage as well. Where is that same outrage when journalists were killed during Operation Protective Edge? It wasn't there. Where was the outrage when journalists were killed during the Great March of Return? It wasn't there. Where was the outrage when the Associated Press and Al Jazeera offices were bombed in 2021? It wasn't there. When Shireen Abu Akhle was assassinated, which we now know deliberately by the IZF, there was plenty of condemnation from places in the pro-Palestinian world, yet silence almost, from the Western media on the complicity of the IDF in their targeted assassination of her deliberately because they know that she would report on their crimes that they commit within within the West Bank was where she did most of her reporting. This fealty to the actions of the IDF is so rampant that even when a Reuters journalist was killed in Lebanon by an Israeli airstrike, they didn't even name the perpetrator who initiated the assault that killed their own journalist in their own report. It is absolutely wild, the level of double standards that we see for the levels to which journalists get killed in the Israel-Palestine conflict. And the reason for this, of course, is because Israel continually lose the PR war. The journalists that we see on the ground reporting on the, the, the levels of indiscriminate bombing and human catastrophe that we see across Gaza and indeed the West Bank, and not just through the current Israel-Hamas war, but throughout the entirety of the Israel-Palestine conflict, is always a big part of contention for the Israeli government because it exposes the things that they continually do throughout the Palestinian territories and have been doing for the last 50 years. But it's only becoming far much more of an issue for them now in that the eye on Gaza is so great with the dissemination of information on social media from both professional and citizen journalists alike. And by the what we can see is something that clearly at this point cannot be just waved away as some kind of accident. It seems to me, from the evidence that I've seen, that this must be some kind of deliberate plan or deliberate, deliberately provoking to try and hide the truth that we see on the ground. Because as we know, as we've reported on Navarra Media before, when Western journalists get invited through to the IDF, all of their footage gets scrutinised. They can only report on certain things the IDF allows them to report on to try and control the narrative that gets shown to Western audiences, lest they see the real truth on the ground within the Palestinian territories. Thank you, Helena, for joining me tonight. We're going to wrap up there. Um, thanks to all of you for tuning in. For now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navarramedia.com 
support.